thank you, Luke, for reading that uh, through for us. So our main text for this morning, as has been told a few minutes ago, is Second Thessalonians chapter two, verses one to seventeen. Second Thessalonians two one to seventeen. And the title of our message this morning is The Man of Sin. The Man of Sin. Uh, you also have some handouts here that divides our chapter into subheadings. So if you'd like to add some notes to that as we go along, feel free to do so. The Apostle John wrote in 1 John 2.18, Little children, it is the last time. And as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. The Lord Jesus himself warned his people of this one whom the Bible calls the Antichrist. In John 5:43, the Lord Jesus said, I am come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him ye will receive. That one whom the scriptures refer to as the Antichrist, or as the son of perdition, as we see here in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, is the one who will take the whole world by deception one day and delude it into believing that he, and not Jesus Christ, is the incarnate God returned to the kingdom here on this earth. Once his rule is firmly established and his alliance with Israel is secured, he will indeed rule this entire world with an iron hand. His power will be supernatural, which brings us to our first point in our message this morning, the man of sin and his power, the man of sin and his power. From all of the evidence that we can gather from Scripture, it is evident that his rule will be worldwide and that it will be absolute, a very frightening concept. He is called the little horn in Daniel chapter 7, verses 24 to 26, which shall rise up and subdue three of the ten kings mentioned there. Quote, And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, and another shall arise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings, and he shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws, and they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and the dividing of time. Militarily and politically he will have his way. He will subdue armies, and politically he will change times and laws, whether these laws refer to religious Jewish laws and set times for certain feasts. I'm not certain exactly the nature of those laws. 
But this we can say for certainty. It takes tremendous political clout to change laws. He will say great words against the Most High God. This, of course, will be blasphemy, and there will be no one to challenge him. He will do battle against the saints of the Most High and wear them out. In other words, he will kill believers. Then in Daniel 11, verses 36 to 38, we get some more insight into his power and his background. He will be Jewish, for Israel can never accept a Messiah unless he is scripturally correct in descent, that is, from the tribe of Judah. And the king shall do according to his will, this is quoting from Daniel, and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak marvelous things against the God of gods, and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished. For that that is determined shall be done. Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall magnify himself above all. But in his estate shall he honor the God of forces, and a God whom his fathers knew not shall he honor with gold and silver and with precious stones and pleasant things. He will have great financial powers, as we shall see in a moment. He will be in control of world commerce because of this. And turning back to the book of Revelation, chapter 13, verses 11 to 18, we read the following. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon, and he exerciseth all the power of the first beast before him, and causeth the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. And he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred, threescore and six. 
Notice, first of all, that this second beast in Revelation 13, verses 11 to 18, is one who comes out of the earth. Symbolically, the earth in Scripture represents Israel. But the first beast in the same chapter, verses 1 to 10, comes out of the sea, which symbolically, again in Scripture, represents the Gentile nations. So we have two beasts here. The first is the undisputed political world ruler, while the second is the Antichrist, the undisputed religious world ruler, both working hand in hand as one. But our attention is focused on this second beast, this one who is called the Antichrist. Let me pause here for a moment and suggest that the term anti can mean two possible things as the Greek allows. It can carry the idea of being against, against Christ or opposed to Christ. But it can also carry the idea of being in place of. Antichrist can be one who deceives the world into believing that he is the real Christ. He is the imposter Christ. This is the interpretation which I believe we shall have in mind. Not opposing Christ. He doesn't come to this earth opposing Christ, but rather standing in the place of Christ. And so this Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, this man of sin and the son of perdition, as the Apostle Paul calls him, will have supernatural powers. He will be the man of miracles. And by those miracles, he will be able to convince the world that he is who he says he is, the Christ. He will also have, Revelation verse 15, the power over life and death. He will institute his own form of worship and have the authority to cause everyone to worship accordingly. He will, according to verses 16 and 17 of Revelation 13, be able to cause everyone to take a mark in his right hand or in their forehead for means of commerce. Those who refuse will not be able to buy or sell and will be put to death. And anyone who does take the name or the mark of the beast will eternally be damned, according to Revelation 14, 9 to 10. What a frightening thought. This thought of an absolute world leader with powers over life and death, unrestrained by moral fortitude or personal accountability. The second point that I would like to look at concerning this wicked one, this man of sin, is his deception. And so I've entitled the second point, The Man of Sin and His Deception. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, 
the Apostle Paul identifies the source of this Antichrist's power, Satan. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. Satan at last will find a man, a perfect man for his purpose, and this one will be so possessed with demonic powers that Satan will be able to accomplish through him what he has not been able to accomplish through any other man before him. World domination and universal worship. At last, Satan's wish will be realized, if even over, uh, only for a season. All these things will I give thee, said Satan, if thou wilt fall down and worship me to the Lord Jesus. In Matthew 4.10, he will finally find a man who will worship him in exactly that way. Now, whether this Antichrist, who is a man, will know that he is Satan's man is up to speculation. My suggestion would be that this final Antichrist will be completely deceived into actually believing that he has the full authority of God behind them in the light of all of his signs and wonders. Satan will, I believe, do a number on him such that he will be totally convinced and dedicate his life to this end. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen to 15 reminds us, And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as ministers of righteousness whose end shall be according to their works. We must remember that this wicked one will arise out of chaos and turmoil. The rapture has just taken place. Millions upon millions of believers worldwide have suddenly been transformed and translated, removed from this earth, leaving behind them a panic-stricken world. Many of these believers would have been on their way to work in their automobiles or on major highways, or perhaps they may have been pilots flying huge airlines in the sky when suddenly their vehicles find themselves without drivers or pilots. The physical carnage on the highways and air routes and on the seas will be horrifying and unimaginable. Untold millions of believers who are doctors, nurses, lawyers, teachers, police officers, construction workers, factory workers, etc., will vanish into thin air. Can you imagine the incredible vacuum and impact that their disappearance will have on those who are left behind? Or the many wars that are raging all around us suddenly 
soldiers, officers, prisoners, just poof into thin air. The scene that will be left behind cannot possibly be imagined. It will be out of such a scenario that Satan will introduce his man to lead the world into some semblance of order and to rebuild the world into a new world order that will bring with it, at least for the first part, peace and stability and prosperity. He will be able to do something that no one has done since Israel lost its kingdom. He will be able to bring peace to Israel and its enemies by signing a peace agreement with them and thereby enabling them once again to rebuild their temple and institute their sacrifices. It is because of his incredible ability to bring peace to Israel that Israel will receive him as their Messiah. Israel rejected Jesus Christ because when he came the first time to save his people from their sins, he did not deliver Israel as a whole from their enemies. He did not restore their kingdom. They did not understand the prophecies concerning him in the Old Testament clearly. They were looking for a conquering Messiah and not a suffering Messiah. But this false Christ will bring the world what it wants at last in the beginning stages. Now again, we must remember that since the church has been removed, the restraining of evil and the restraining deception by the Holy Spirit in the form of his indwelling all believers is also removed. Evil and deception will be rampant. And those who have been taught the gospel of salvation but have rejected it will no longer be able to be saved. They will be deluded into believing Satan's man and will receive him. God himself will send them strong delusion, as we are told in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 11 to 12. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they might all be damned who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Satan will finally be cast from heaven and allowed to do his worst here on this Christ-rejecting world. This would This world that would not have Christ reign over them will now have the Antichrist reigning over them. Demon possession will be the order of the day. Men will be deceived into doing things that they could never have imagined. In Revelation 16, verses 13 to 14, we get a glimpse of why such a huge army gathers for the battle at Armageddon. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs 
come out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. And the false prophet here is the Antichrist. For they are all the spirits of devils working miracles, which go forth onto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to battle of that great day of God Almighty. Yet in his wrath of pouring judgment upon this earth during those tribulation years, God still will show his mercy. He will still leave a testimony behind for those who have never heard. It will be in the form of the two witnesses in Revelation 11, 3 to 12. And those who will believe as a result of their ministry. But this is just an aside and we'll cover that maybe some other time. The third point, which I would like to look at briefly, is the destruction of the Antichrist. And so I've entitled it, The Man of Sin and His Destruction. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. Paul writes, And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. That the Antichrist will eventually be destroyed, and all whom he has deceived, is an undeniable fact of Scripture. Though he will exercise absolute power as no man ever had in the annals of history before, his terrible reign will come to a horrifying end. It will finally terminate at that great battle in the book of the Revelation, verse six, or chapter 16, verse 16, and Revelation 19, verses 19 to 21. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. That is referring to Christ. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that had worshipped his beast. These both, these both were cast into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth. And all the fowls were filled with their flesh. Thus will the Lord consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy them who have been deceived when he comes back to this earth with all his saints to establish his thousand-year reign. Satan, of course, will be bound in chains and darkness during this time so that there will be no more satanic deception when Christ rules. All of these events are part of that time period which the scriptures call the day of the Lord. Now again, we must remember 
that much of what we have just seen is all revealed in the canon of New Testament scripture, which the young believers at the Church of Thessalonica did not yet have access to, since it had not yet been written. And so the majority of their understanding had come from the verbal teaching and preaching of Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and other ministers of the gospel. God was still giving revelation to the apostles. And this is what was so hard for these believers. There were those men who also claimed to be prophets of God, but were not. These false prophets apparently introduced many troubling doctrines, false doctrines, which caused confusion and anxiety amongst new believers. It was therefore necessary for the Apostle Paul to again write to this church, especially about the events and sequences of events during the day of the Lord. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by, notice, by letter as from us, as the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means. It seems that there may have been many letters circulating among the early churches supposedly written by Paul, teaching contrary doctrines. They had caused confusion among these believers because they were not sure what to make of them. So Paul sets things straight in this chapter, as we will see in a moment. But he also gives the churches his token of authenticity in every epistle by his characteristic salutation. Look at chapter 3, verses 17 to 18. Paul concludes, The salutation of Paul with mine own hand, which is the token in every epistle. So I write. What is that token? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Paul would use as his trademark the traditional greeting in all of his epistles, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, and then conclude with the familiar closing of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. This was to be his sign to the believers that it was written by Paul. Now, as for the sequence of events which were to take place during the day of the Lord, Paul categorizes them in order in chapter 2, verses 3 to 8. I would like to briefly look at these before we conclude this morning. He writes in verse 3, 
Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there be uh, there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Don't be misled, says the apostle. Don't let anyone fool you that you are already undergoing the great tribulation when you are experiencing these present persecutions. The time is not yet. Remember what I told you. Remember what I wrote to you in my last letter about the rapture. You are to be waiting for Christ's appearing in another way. You, as believers, are not going to go through the tribulation. You, as believers, are saved from the wrath to come. God will translate you when the time is right. So those terrible years of God's judgment cannot begin until, first of all, the man of sin has been revealed. And he cannot be revealed until there come first a falling away, the great apostasy and the rapture. Now, this merits our attention, this uh, apostasy. We see the latter stages of this apostasy already at work in the church. And we have seen it for the past 50 years or so. It began actually in Paul's time already. Apostasy has to do with believers, for only believers or professing believers can fall away from the truths of Scripture. The heathen or pagans can never fall away from things they had never been taught or believed in the first place. So this apostasy will take place within the professing church and churches. We see what has happened today and wonder just how much worse it can possibly get. Well, it will get much worse because this apostasy or falling away has to be brought about in its fullness by the removal of the restrainer. And who's the restrainer? The Holy Spirit, indwelling believers. Verses 6 and 7. And now ye know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time, for the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth, that is, God the Holy Spirit, letteth is an old word, old English word, meaning restrains. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. And when will the Holy Spirit be taken out of the way in Mass? When the rapture comes, indwelling believers. And then, and then shall that wicked be revealed. 
The restraining force of complete apostasy is a person. And until he be taken out of the way, it cannot happen. Who is he? He is the Holy Spirit in the form of indwelling believers. And when he is removed, so will be the worldwide body of believers, the true church. What will be left will be the apostate church or the false professing church worldwide, which will receive and worship the Antichrist as their Savior. Remember, Paul says in verse 5, I told you these things when I was with you, so don't worry. Don't panic. You are not enduring the great tribulation as some have suggested. The great tribulation cannot come without the Antichrist and our present wicked rulers, evil though some of them may be, they are not the Antichrist. And the Antichrist cannot be revealed until the Holy Spirit is first removed with the church. And the church has not yet been removed because you and I and the brethren are still here. So in light of all these things, verses 15 to 17, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. And so ends our brief exhortation on Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and our look at how Christians are to survive in a hostile and violent environment. There is much around us today, as there has always been, to deceive us and to mislead us. But God is gracious and merciful to those who look to him for their salvation and depend upon him daily to deliver them from these things. However, sometimes God may choose to deliver his people out of their afflictions and at other times through their afflictions, giving them calm assurance and the peace of God, which passeth all understanding. His word is steadfast and sure and will never change. The Christian's hope, as it had been throughout the centuries, is still the same today. It is still the rapture. That great hope of meeting the Lord in the air with all the saints and so being with them forever. In closing, let me say this. I trust that everyone here this morning is looking for the Lord in the air, for the rapture, and not for the Antichrist who will be revealed after the rapture, when the whole church is removed. 
There are those who poo-hoo all of this about the rapture and the Antichrist and terrible judgments which God will pour upon this world someday. They say it is all nonsense and that if it happens and if they see it with their own eyes, then they will believe it. Well, dear friends, I hope and pray that there is no one here this morning with that kind of thinking or loved ones with that kind of thinking. For if there is, the Bible is very clear in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 10 to 11. You will not be able to believe when these happen, these things happen, because God will then himself, in his wrath, send delusion upon those people so that they will instead believe a lie and be damned. Do not take that chance if you are not saved this morning. Turn to him while there is still yet time and trust him. Many profess to know him, but their lives do not reflect that profession. If one is truly his, then one will know him and love him, and one will keep his commandments. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, we are told in Scripture. Let's pray. Father, we thank thee for thy holy word. And we must confess that some of the things, the events that we see happening around us today have caused, have caused great consternation. But because we know the Savior and because we know who holds the future, every day is worth living and is exciting to see what God has in store for those who love him. But Father, we pray for those many in our families who are yet not saved. We pray that they will come to their senses and see their desperate need for forgiveness of sins and come to Christ. Help us, Lord, to, with compassionate hearts, and wise minds reach out to those that we know that are still lost, regardless of how shameful we might be treated. Part us now, Lord, we pray with thy blessings, and if the Lord be not come by next week, may it please thee once again to bring us together around his table, for we always ask it in his name, and for his glory. Amen.